One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Whether you know something about the Guise family of France or not, today you are in for a treat. But if you don't, let me set the scene and introduce this powerful, beguiling family. The House of Guise was a prominent French noble family whose lines included the Counts of Guise and the Dukedoms of Lorraine. In 1506, the Duke of Lorraine sent his son Claude to be raised at the French court, and Claude struck up a close friendship with the heir to the throne, François. In 1513, Claude was permitted to marry François's cousin, Antoinette de Bourbon, and when François became King François I in 1515, Claude was rewarded with military commands and household offices, such as the Grand Veigneur de France, the Master of the Hunt, and Governor of Burgundy, one of France's most important provinces, which had only recently ceased to be an independent province. In 1528, the king elevated Guise to a duchy peerage, making him centrally tantamount to a prince. Claude and Antoinette had 12 children, and among the most prominent whom you'll meet today were Marie de Guise, François and Charles, Charles for today's purposes. Marie married James V of Scotland, and they became parents to Mary, Queen of Scots, who later married the Dauphin of France, the heir to the French throne, the future François II. François of Guise was a military man, later second Duke of Guise, and Charles became Archbishop of Reims, and Cardinal of Lorraine. King François I was succeeded by Henri II. But when Henri died, the Dauphin became King François II, crowned in 1559 by none other than his maternal uncle, Charles de Guise, Cardinal of Lorraine. As the young king was inexperienced and not in good health, his mother, Catherine de' Medici, directed ministers to work with the king's uncles, the Guise. So little did he know it, but King François I's actions had elevated a family who would dominate French history for the next hundred years, intertwining with the Stuarts of Scotland. These ultra-Catholics would be involved in massacres, murders, the French wars of religion, and would even take the throne of France. Here today to talk about the Guise and to set their actions in a wider European context of enmity and violence, I'm delighted to welcome Stuart Carroll, Professor of Early Modern History at the University of York. He is the author of Blood and Violence in Early Modern France, Cultures of Violence, Interpersonal Violence in Historical Perspective, and Martyrs and Murders, The Guise Family and the Making of Europe. The latter was awarded the J. Russell Major Prize by the American Historical Association for the best French history book of the year. 
Later this year, Professor Carroll's new book, Enmity and Violence in Early Modern Europe, will be published by Cambridge University Press. Professor Stuart Carroll, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It's an absolute treat to talk to you about this topic today. I've been a long admirer of your work and now I have a chance to quiz you on it, which is wonderful. Well, thanks for inviting me and hello to all you listeners out there. (laughs) Thank you. You're joining us to talk about the geese in a themed month on murder and violence. And it's a topic that for many people they might find... I don't know, their stomachs turned a little, but you have spent a lot of time working on violence. And so the first thing I have to ask you is, what first drew you to working on this and why are you still doing that? What keeps you there? It's a really good question. If you look at my website, you'll see that I write lots of books about violence. and It seems like I might be a very bloodthirsty and violent person. The reason why I kind of got interested in it was actually what I'm really interested in is social relations and how people get on in the past or often don't get on. And violence is a really good way into that because violence leaves records, it leaves bodies. And we can say quite a lot about social relations through violence. And the subject of violence, that's what I got into having studied the Guise. I was interested in social relations, how the family formed a kind of following, how they mobilised supporters. And that's how I first got interested in social relations, how they interact with each other. But they were involved in a series of vendettas and feuds with other families. And I got kind of interested in the whole idea of vendetta and feud as a subject and pursued that. And from there, I went on on to violence. But I've always still got that back in my mind, that issue about how people get on or don't get on, how they reconcile, how they fall out. So I'm quite interested in that whole issue of social relations. That's interesting you mentioned vendettas, because I think that when we consider the 16th century in France, immediately, of course, our minds jump to the wars of religion And we might think that religion is driving the vast majority of the murder and violence that we see perhaps between the eminent families of France. Do you think that's fair or do you want to point to other causes of conflict? Yeah, and obviously religion is very important because you have Europe's largest Calvinist party. You have a million people, 10% of the population who are Protestant and they are opposed by a large proportion of Catholics. But it's also important to remind us that not everyone hates everyone else and is beating each other up. There are plenty of Catholics who, although they think these people are heretics, don't want to kill them. Recent research is tending to show that the reason why the Reformation in France is so violent compared to, say, what goes on in England or Germany is local, and that must mean political. And I think it's the political fallout which is driving very high rates of vendetta and violence. Now, of course, they're infused with religious issues. But it may be that it's very difficult to untangle politics and religion. But it's the politics which is instrumentalising the violence. You need the politics. When you get two religions, as it were, that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to start chopping each other up. You need something else. It seems to be the politics which is driving the violence. Let us think about this chronologically. I'd like to talk first about François II Duc de Guise and his brother Charles, Archbishop of Reims, and the Cardinal of Lorraine, who both advised the young king, François II. Can you describe the manner and the style in which they worked with François? Is it fair to characterise them as self-serving from the outset? Well, they have their family priorities, 
and their family priorities had always been resistance to the House of Habsburg because they have claims in Italy and in the Empire and also, as we shall probably discuss, in England and Scotland, which were directly opposed to Habsburg power. So the reason why the family was important in France was they're part of a kind of configuration, which is this struggle between France and Spain, and they're very much part of the French party. So in the 1550s in particular, they are rewarded for their success in fighting the Habsburgs, particularly in Italy. They're rewarded with the marriage of their niece, who's very famous in this country, Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, or the daughter of Mary of Guise. That's the sister of the two people you're talking about, Francois and Charles. They're her uncles. And she is married to the Dauphin Francis II. So that's a reward during this dynastic struggle between the royal houses ruling France and Spain. And at this stage in the 1550s, I said, it's very much a case of resistance to Spanish hegemony. Perhaps the first major confrontation involving the Guise whilst they're working for Mary Stuart's husband, Francois II, is the Amboise conspiracy. Can you tell us about this and what the actions of the Guise were in it? Well, the conspiracy of Amboise is a revolt against Guise rule. What happened in 1559 is that the ruling King Henry II had died and Francis II and his wife Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, had become King and Queen of France. But Francis II is only 15 years old. He's not the brightest tool in the box and it's his uncles, the Guise, who are running the show. There's lots of resistance to them. And the resistance to them comes from a family, the House of Bourbon, listeners will probably know very well, who are called princes of the blood. And they think they have a constitutional right to rule. And they are often supported by Protestants. Protestants are hostile to the Guise. The Guise are seen as doubling down on heresy trials. So the tumult of Amboise, or the conspiracy of Amboise, is an attempt really to basically, I guess, topple and murder the Guise family. It's unsuccessful. It's brutally repressed. However, the fallout from that is actually the Guise realise that they cannot suppress Protestantism. What actually happens in France after 1560, the success of that is effectively to decriminalise heresy. And do you feel that the Guise response to this conspiracy could be regarded as unjustifiably murderous and bloodthirsty, or is it justified in their own terms? Protestant propaganda portrayed this as vicious, bloody kind of repression. Many people, of course, thought this is perfectly legitimate execution of traitors. It's important also to point out the international context of what is going on, because, as I pointed out, the Guise were basically also running Scotland, Mary of Guise's regent in Scotland. One reason why they want to decriminalise heresy in France and prevent any further uprising is because there's a Protestant revolt going on in Scotland and there's an effective war to repress what's going on in Scotland. The Guise also, through Mary Stuart, claim the crown of England. The French King Francis II, as I said, not the brightest tool in the box there, nephew, Mary Stuart's husband, Francis II, he quarters his arms with those of England. He's claiming to be King of England and Scotland and Ireland. So the Guise, 
They want to kind of settle things down in France. So they've got exciting projects about conquering what they call the Franco-British Empire. It's creating an empire in the British Isles. And this is really the Guise plan. They want to kind of keep things sweet at home. They don't really want a Protestant insurgency. Elizabeth, of course, Elizabeth I of England, very keen to promote any Protestant insurgency in France, which is going to keep the Guise firmly out of her neck of the woods, as it were. One thing I hadn't appreciated before reading your work is that this 1560 edict of Amboise increases the threat to the Guise, that the assassination attempts increase, the hunters become the hunted. Could you say a bit more about this? Because especially as this edict is supposed to be an attempt at toleration, whether you think that's a good or a bad thing at the time, it seems to be the opposite consequence. That's a good question. We tend to see Protestants as victims, certainly in the Anglo sphere we see France had the largest Protestant church in Europe. One thing the Protestants are doing in France is they're also drawing a lot of classical ideas about tyranny and resistance to tyranny and French Protestants are developing a political thought which sees as legitimate to topple and kill tyrants and although they're a minority in France they can't really take over the, you know, defeat 90% of Catholics, they begin to, as it were, target certain individuals. They might be members of the Guise family or particular Catholic lords or sometimes tax collectors, that's often quite popular, who they see as tyrannous or representatives of malice and evil. And you begin to get this use of political assassination, which becomes a feature of the French wars of religion and in some ways, it's the Protestants who kind of kickstart that off. Yes, and I was just thinking as you were saying that, I wonder if some of our way of seeing the French Wars religion, what will happen over the next 40 years, is informed by the narrative that's going on in England at the time and over the centuries to follow, you know, John Fox and the Book of Martyrs. And actually, it changes the way that Protestants have to be seen as martyrs. Whereas, you know, I'm quite aware that in the 1560s, there were massacres of Catholics as well. Yeah, I mean, there are some massacres of Catholics. It's fairly limited. As you know from Nîmes, there's a famous massacre. That's because really the Protestants were in majority. Most of the massacres that occur tend to be committed by Catholics because they're in the majority. And because they see the Protestants both as a heretical threat, but they see them also as insurgents. They see them as a political threat. They see them as seditious. And that, that, again, goes back to the political thought. You mentioned Fox. An early French edition of Fox states that the kings of France are simply the captain general of God's elect. You can overthrow kings. So this is a new way of political thinking, and it's a threat to many Catholics, and they don't like it. Another example in the 1560s is the Ciceronian idea that the safety of the people is the highest law. This is something we'll see revived during the English Revolution and during the American Revolution. The, the Calvinists in France are quite politically radical and Catholics react against this. They don't like this idea that the ancient constitution of France is being threatened and overturned. I think that politics is driving a lot of the violence. That's so interesting. OK, so let's talk about the massacre of Vassy, 1562, that involves François Dutiguise, who earns the title the Butcher of Vassy. Can you tell us what happened and whether you think the Duke could have acted differently in the circumstances of that massacre? Yeah, sure. We need to go back a little bit to understand the context that Francis II, the Guise, had been in power Francis II was not only not the brightest tool in the box, he wasn't very healthy and he dies in 1560, age 15. He's replaced by his brother 
Anne Charles, and that's a minority, and Catherine de' Medici, who's the Queen Mother, takes over. The Guise are effectively out of power. And in 1562, there is an official policy of toleration, which allows Protestants to worship outside of the city walls. Guise is probably not very happy about this. In March 1562, he's on his way to Paris to oppose this and to join with other magnates who are very unhappy with this policy. He passes the small town of Vassy. What he finds is that the worshippers are worshipping inside the city walls against the Edict of Toleration. He and his men are not very happy about this. Now, of course, there's a spirit here in the law. The law was on his side. He was going to break up this meeting. The spirit, of course, is against this. What happens is it seems that his men don't like the attitudes of the Protestants. They get out of hand. They butcher 30, 40, 50 women and children. So, yes, he could have behaved differently. He tries to justify himself and say, well, you know, it wasn't my fault. Uh, I was provoked, etc. But I think most people at the time, certainly commentators in Germany, which was very important because there's lots of German Protestants who don't believe the Guise. The Protestants certainly don't believe the Guise. And they actually take up arms in, to defend the Edict of Toleration. So the massacre is very important in both dividing opinion across Europe, in seeing this is a black and white fight between good and evil, and also it leads to the Protestants actually taking up arms. So the massacre is a very key event. And would it be fair to say, therefore, that the massacre of Vassy was the beginning of the French Wars religion? It's certainly been seen as such. Do you agree with that view? It's the beginning of the campaigning and official fighting. But the civil wars had really, a bit like the American Civil War gets underway in 1861, but they've been fighting in Missouri and in Kansas in the localities for a long time, very vicious fighting. And the same is true of France, that there's been low-level fighting really from the late 1550s, which sometimes really has no relationship with what's going on at court and at the top. And some of that's really quite unpleasant. So you already begin to see the formation before that of what you might get called local militias or paramilitary groups, often small groups of people, both Catholics and Protestants, who are fighting each other already. Similar in some ways to Northern Ireland, I guess. It's not always the whole people against the whole people. Neighbour is not turning against neighbour. It tends to be small groups of very highly motivated and very well-armed local notables. And there's a fascinating etymological detail that it is Vassy that adds the word massacre to the political lexicon. The massacre is the chopping block in French. So we get lots of words from the 16th century which are new. I talked about this new politics. The language is changing and the word massacre, unfortunately, is a new one. And it's a word that's used by Protestants in particular to justify their cause and to paint the Guise in particular as dark and evil, the Antichrist. And it has a European significance because those pamphlets are published throughout Europe in different European languages, particularly in English and German, because you want to appeal to your co-religionists to come and help. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Over on the Warfare podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War... And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts. Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts and join us on the front lines of military history. to the first sort of major battle of the French Wars of Religion, the Battle of Dreux in 1562. It's fascinating that we've got people who are fighting their neighbours, people who have been their friends until very recently, potentially. But they also seem to be fighting between co-religionists. Why were people fighting those who believed the same of them, given that here we are thinking of the Wars of Religion as this great battle between the Protestants and the Catholics, which of course it is in large part, but would the sense that people were fighting those who were their co-religionists have mattered to François, Duc de Guise, as one of the commanders? What was his motive? Yeah, I think we need to see religion as a bit of a spectrum. There are many Protestants, for example, particularly elite ones, they didn't like the idea of rebellion or being seditious. So some of these people, like the head of the House of Bourbon, Antoine de Navarre, he's probably some sort of evangelical, moderate Protestant. We don't really know. But he certainly wasn't very happy in being a rebel. There are a couple of people like that. Many Catholics didn't particularly like the idea of butchering Protestants. So we need to see that as a bit of a continuum. Of course, what happens in any civil war situation is the more blood you have, it becomes much harder to be a moderate. And the longer the wars go on and the bloody they get, you need to choose your party. Moderation becomes more difficult because everyone's got blood on their hands And you soon have a history of vendetta and of memories of killing and you want to get revenge. So the first wars are rather different, I think. The first war, you do see quite a lot of temporisation. People not really kind of want to get involved. 
you see quite a lot of side changing, people temporising. Of course, that changes as the violence continues and it becomes more difficult to stay out of the fray. Yes, so during the course of the wars, in other words, the fact that these are going on is polarising people, making them entrench in their positions and in making it more violent. Absolutely, and it becomes harder to stop the violence. You begin to get a narrative which is rooted not in moderation and toleration and temperance, but in stories of violence. One can imagine the ways in which, for example, we talked about François Duc de Guise, he's assassinated in 1563. They claim it's a Protestant assassin. The family is just devastated and they swear vengeance and memories of that begin to dominate their political thinking. They're opposed to toleration because the best way they can get at their opponents is when there's war going on. It legitimises revenge. That's so interesting that these stories that we tell, the narrative about it determines the outcome. Here, his death is completely altering the political situation because it creates this sense that this is what we must do. This is now our mission is to revenge this death. Absolutely. And we actually have some documents which the Guise drew up and forced all their supporters to swear to and to sign that they would pursue Admiral Coligny, who's the leader of the Protestants, to the fourth generation of descent, that this would be a vendetta and people would subscribe to this. And the Crown has a real difficulty in trying to get these families to reconcile and to sign up to peace treaties because it's much easier to pursue an enemy when you've got war going on. Okay, so let's skip forward some nine years now, talking of Coligny, and discuss the St Bartholomew's Day massacre of the Huguenots in August 1572. I'm sure we might have to draw on the 1560s, but this is explained in some quarters as a result of Guy's enmity. Please could you remind listeners what happened in the massacre and then tell me what you think the proportion of blame should be on the Guise themselves. I think when we come to the massacre, which occurred between the 22nd and 24th of August, we need to keep in mind that the massacre that began on the 24th is actually two separate events. The first event is really an aristocratic one, and that is an attempt to decapitate the Protestant leadership who comprise about 60, 70 people in Paris. I'll come back to why they're there in a moment. The thousands who are killed is a much more popular massacre and one that wasn't foreseen or wanted by the perpetrators of the aristocratic massacre. Now, the background to that aristocratic massacre is really rooted in politics, and it's rooted in the fact that Coligny had what happens in a very important event in European history, which is the revolt of the Netherlands against Spanish rule. Coligny as wanting to go into the Netherlands. He um, had relied as leader of the Protestant party in the 1560s on support from the Prince of Orange and the House of Nassau and on Dutch volunteers, Protestant exile volunteers from the Netherlands. He is honour bound and duty bound to support them in their hour of need and he's gonna go. Someone attempts to assassinate him on the 22nd of August. We don't quite know who that was. We actually know who pulled the trigger. We don't know why that was, but whoever wanted him out there didn't want him to go into the Netherlands. Possibly it was Catherine, but we can never know that for certain. Unfortunately for the assassin, that doesn't actually work because he's only wounded. The Protestants then cry vengeance. They want revenge. They want justice for this attempted assassination. It's clear that any judicial investigation would expose the plot, the conspiracy behind that and who wanted him out of the way. 
So the Crown calls a meeting on the 23rd of August. They decided, this is the aristocratic decapitation phase, as it were. They decide, Catherine, her acolytes, the Guise, they decide they're going to chop off the Protestant elite. They had gathered there for the marriage, which was to seal the peace between the leader of the Protestant party, Antoine of Navarre, and Catherine's daughter, Margot. There are thousands of Protestants in Paris, but the plot here is only to decapitate the top leadership. That's actually a list of names drawn up, 60 or 70. The problem with that is that when the aristocratic death squads go into the city to pick up these people and start chopping them, they make such a commotion that the city militia decides this is a good idea to join in. People clearly think it's legitimate to massacre anybody. So the whole thing really just gets out of hand. It's an aristocratic plot, a cunning plan, which gets out of hand. And recent research also shows that the killers who kill about two to 4,000 people in Paris, again, are not the whole of the city. Paris is a population of 300,000. It's not the people. It tends to be members of the city militia. It tends to be a number of very highly motivated, ideologically driven, heavily armed killers who are often people who hold public office. They're minor office holders, people who have a policing function. And these people are very unpleasant. Many of them are killing several hundred people. So in many respects, the killing is very similar to what happened, if one could imagine this, in Eastern Europe in the mid 20th century kind of Einsatzgruppen types of people heavily armed, heavily motivated. It's not the general population. It's cadres of radical Catholics. And there's a certain pattern to the violence as well, I suppose, that we should touch on, which is that it is symbolic or related to the perceived crimes of the Protestants. You know, I'm thinking of the bookbinder in the Latin Quarter, forgotten his name, but who's burnt half dead and then hauled into the Seine or baptism of Nicholas and Mercier's daughter in the blood of her parents. These sort of terrible stories that have emerged from people studying the massacre. People are not just killed, they're eviscerated. Their bodies are chopped up. You know, Coligny's head is used as a football. People's genitals are cut off. It's extremely unpleasant. Bodies are dumped in the river. But this is nothing different than what's happening in the Ukraine, than happened in Yugoslavia, than happened in Eastern Europe. In many ways, this is not something which is a kind of medieval atrocity. It looks forward to the violence of the 20th century. In many ways, the wars of religion doesn't look back. It looks forward. In many ways, it's the first ideological, modern civil war that looks forward to modern conflicts. To understand that violence is a very difficult thing. It's a very sensitive subject, but one... I think, would want to look at what's going on in the 20th century to understand that. It seemed to be something related to the dehumanisation of other people, often carried out by people with an ideological purpose. We also know, of course, that in many cases there's a material interest. Many of these people are neighbours of the people they killed. They had pre-existing enmities. Often they'd been involved in trying to arrest these people or harassing and intimidating them in the 1560s. And in many cases they were after their property as well. So to pick up the story chronologically again, let's look now to, let's see, 1576, Henri III, Duke of Guise, already who's earned himself the moniker of Le Balafre or Scarface, and he forms the Catholic League. 
And this is very much that intersection of political and religious in that it's a kind of frustration at the moderate policies of the new king, Henri III, and relations deteriorate between the Guise and the royal family when Henry of Navarre, a Protestant, is named as heir to the throne. Now, can we talk about the so-called War of the Three Henrys and can we explain the context or actions of the Guise here as anything other than a lust for power, really? Again, it's very difficult to uncover private motivations and to see, you know, they are sincere Catholics and good Catholics, but clearly radical Catholicism in the sense of overthrowing the monarchy, because this is what the League really in the end is dedicated to doing. They're dedicated to preventing anyone, certainly if you need to know something of your dynastic history here, that Henry III is the last Valois king, he's the last Catholic heir, he doesn't have any children, his brother, who's the heir, dies in 1584, and the heir is Henry of Navarre, Henri de Beaumont. He's a Protestant. The Catholic League is dedicated to preventing Protestant succession. The Guise really don't have anywhere to go. They've been cut out of power by Henry III. They're on their uppers financially. Really radical Catholicism offers them a way back in, as it were. It's the only really route for them. And they really pitch their star to urban radical Catholicism, which is not only, again, just a religious thing. It also has a political kind of wing, which is to reconstitute the monarchy on a much more representative. It borrows a lot of that Protestant thinking about the sovereignty of the people, but is in things like elective monarchy. They're going to elect their own king, who is a good Catholic, and they're going to have an estate general, which meets regularly, a bit like an English parliament, because given the fact that 90% of the people are Catholic, you can pretty much ensure that you'll have a majority of Catholics running that. So they have a kind of radical political message as well as a kind of bigoted religious one. And just when we thought the Guise story couldn't get any more murderous, we have Henri and his brother Louis assassinated. Um, you tell the story really brilliantly in your book. How did they become hoisted on their own petard? Well, what happens in 1588 is the Catholic League takes power in effectively a revolution. They rise up, they try to seize the king, but he runs out from Paris, and the Guise really take over. Eventually, the king is enticed back, but he's very unhappy. He sees these as radicals, as revolutionaries, as upstarts, and he's very suspicious of the Guise. An estate general is called and the king realises at the estate general that this is the future. And the future is he's going to be constrained by the people and the sovereignty of the people. And he blames the Guise for that and he decides to take power back. And what that is effectively is a counter-revolution. He murders the Guise. He arrests radical members of the estate general. He's going to rule as an absolute monarch, either without the Guise or without the Estates General. So this is a kind of reassertion of royal will, of royal power, unconstrained either by the Guise or their kind of popular allies. We've dashed through the story of the Guise in the 16th century. And of course, anyone who wants to dig deeper into the story has a very good book to turn to in Martyrs and Murders. But I want to pick up a theme from your forthcoming work, Enmity and Violence in early modern Europe, because you explain that enmity is more than anger. It's a matrix of emotion and action and relationship, which you say psychologists have found important in the development of group cohesion and identity. So I want to ask you, do you think that enmity was at the core of the Guise family? Yeah, I think we can see the ways in which enmity also gets worse during periods of civil war, that the whole point of the book was really to try and open that out and look at that in other contexts, both in England, 
both in Germany and France. It was to take the story of France and see whether that was applicable to other countries. And it is in different contexts. But enmity is something which I think we can all understand. We all have our own enemies. What's different about our societies, we've learned to trivialise them. In the past, enemies were much more serious. They posed a threat to one's existence, possibly one's life, one's religion. So enemies in the 16th and 17th century were much more potent. When people talked about enemies, they usually used the English word quarrel, which I explain in the book. The English word quarrel in the 16th and 17th century means something very different to what it means today. It comes from the French word querelle, which really means a judicial complaint. It means a just grievance. Today, a quarrel is really something trivial between people who are really at heart good friends. We have a quarrel. In the 16th and 17th century, a quarrel is really a Manichaean struggle. It's God's quarrel. When Shakespeare talked about the quarrel between the houses of Lancaster and York, he did not mean something trivial. He meant something that was really serious. So when people have quarrels in the 16th and 17th century, these are akin to feuds or really public hostilities, and they're very serious. And of course, they get serious during times of civil conflict. So the idea is to look at why that gets so serious in the 16th and 17th century. So I look at the Reformation and I look at new Renaissance ideas about how you pursue quarrels. And I try and also look about why that word changes in the late 17th and 18th century. And we learn to rather trivialise our quarrels and put our enmities in the context of society, because society is a new word in the 17th century. The idea that we need to sort of calibrate our own egos and our own causes in terms of society. Because if we pursue our own rights and our own egotistical desires, we may upset the apple cart. So can I ask you then about this broader argument? Because you're suggesting that we shouldn't demarcate the medieval and the early modern by saying, after 1500, there is growing rational behaviour and adherence to the law, that actually this is a period in which many of the narratives we've had about, say, the Reformation producing more effective social control, perhaps. There's certainly very good evidence that there's a significant increase in interpersonal violence at the end of the 16th century, peaking in the 17th. And sometimes that's caused by the state, because the state itself in the 16th and 17th century is not always a benign thing. It's taking taxes, it's not really interesting all the sorts of things that we take for granted today that the state might do and look after us. People often don't trust the state. It's certainly not interesting in prosecuting most crimes. Most litigation in the 16th and 17th century is largely a question of people fighting out their own causes through private litigation. So litigation is also increasing at the same time as violence because litigation is another aspect of rising conflict. I wonder what you made of Stephen Pinker's book about the suggestion that there was a decrease in violence over the centuries. Yeah, violence goes down in the 18th century, certainly in Europe in the 18th and 19th century. The trouble is that Pinker thinks that violence is always going down all the time. There's very good evidence from the US in particular that violence actually goes up in the 19th century, is very high in the 20th. So you'd need really to look at individual states and see why that was the case. It's not an overall decline all the time. So the good example is that, again, the US, where though homicide rates in particular were going down in the 1990s, early 2000, the US in 2020 had a 30% increase in the homicide rate, the largest ever increase in the homicide rate. So we're very lucky and very fortunate that we live in a very peaceful society. Homicide rates are much lower than they were in the past, but they're not always going down all the time one way. The job of the historian is to track why they go up and down. And there's no doubt 
that violence is probably going down in the late Middle Ages because the Middle Ages have very effective systems. There are courts and sophisticated cities and there's the whole sacrament of penance and the church making peace. The Reformation, the Renaissance, social change is meaning that violence is exploding throughout Europe in the late 16th and early 17th century. And this is happening before civil war starts. Civil war just makes it a hell of a lot worse. And we've got very good evidence across Europe for this. And it seems to be a European-wide phenomenon. So if we are to judge, finally, then, the Guise as a family who use murder and violence to secure their power, can we simply say that they are people of their time? I think that's a good point. Yeah, unfortunately, what would you do in their situation? As a historian, we don't want to identify with people and say, what would you have done in this situation? And sometimes in a situation where society full of mistrust and fear and civil war, it's quicker and easier to lash out first and use violence. It might be worth saying that that changes over time. In 1560, as we've seen, there is an attempt by the Guise to actually lessen heresy prosecution. So they're kind of not all bad. But of course, as the civil wars go on, they tend, like most people, to harden their position. Civil wars are not conducive to moderation and to toleration, and they simply harden their position. So the answer to that is avoiding civil conflict in the first place. Absolutely. And that sounds like the topic for another podcast. But thank you very much for talking so fascinatingly about interpersonal violence and the context of the 16th century and the Guise, and also actually for bringing so many other examples that have really brought home the reality of what was going on in that time. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you for listening. Thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, my researcher, Esther Arnott, and Stuart Beckwith, who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors also if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts do sign up to our newsletter tudor tuesday details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and one more thing if you'll allow me a moment of modesty do check out my new TV series. It's called The Royals, A History of Scandals. It's on More 4. I'm probing the history of royal scandals across the centuries by talking to experts about the role that press, parliament and the public have played in generating outrage and spreading rumour. There's some corkers here. Stories you know and stories you may never have heard of. It's available online at channel4.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.